Good morning. Well, it, it is really such a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, my wife and I have been looking forward to this for a few weeks now to be with uh, so many of you who are really dear friends to us. And um, so thank you for having us this morning. Um, I thought I'd start by uh, sharing a story. My, I have two little brothers, and one of them has a friend who is a Navy SEAL, which makes for really interesting story times when we all get together. Because really, uh, what this guy does on a daily basis when he's at home training in the States is probably what maybe most guys in here would like to be doing uh, with their lives. So if you are a student, for example, studying the finer points of geometry in class, while you're doing that, he's out studying the final po- finer points of how to use a grenade launcher. Uh, or if you're, you know, typing emails, getting back to, to guys, he's out in the jungle learning how to stalk a guy. So he has um, a very interesting life. And um, a number of years ago when my little brother got married, we were at a bachelor party and his Navy, C- Navy SEAL buddy was there with us. And um, he was really excited because he wanted to share with us this video that um, was kind of a highlight reel from this recent training that he had been at. Uh, so he'd recently come from this school called Halo School, which stands for, it's not the video game, but it stands for High Altitude, Low Opening, and it's a parachuting school. And so what they would do with these guys is that they would, they would have them in a classroom for a day or so and kind of teach them from a book what it is that they're supposed to know. But then a day or two after that, they are pushing them out of an airplane. And, um, and it's really nothing short of hilarious, this video that we were watching, because so many of them had never parachuted before. Um, and so you, you also, and the, the other part that was really funny is that they put them in these baby blue or powder blue uh, jumpsuits that had these bars hanging off the side so that when they jumped out of the aircraft, the instructors who were jumping with them could kind of maneuver them in the air and teach them how they were supposed to fly. And so we're watching this and we're laughing because, again, most of them had never jumped out of an airplane before, um, which, you know, self-preservation and all that. But um, they, so, so many of them, you know, didn't know to close their mouth, so they're flapping around like a dog sticking their head out of the window. And, and one guy even jumps out of the airplane and and he just starts running in midair. And we're just, we're laughing. You got no traction, buddy. Come on. Um, and so, but what we, what we started to see with each progressive jump is that they, they got better and better. And they started to look less and less funny and more and more impressive. And um, by the end of the video, I noticed that in the room where there had been much laughter before, um, we, were, we were kind of quiet. And, and because what we saw was on their final jump, they were out of their baby blues, and they were in their jungle camo with dark greens and blacks. And they had about 60 pounds of gear or so strapped to them with their, with their weapons. And um, when they boarded the airplane, there was no look of fear in their eyes. And when they got the signal to jump out of the aircraft, they did it without hesitation. And I think we quit laughing because what we were watching as we saw them descend and what was occurring to us is that these guys weren't just guys taking a parachute class for fun. These were warriors preparing to insert behind enemy lines. High altitude is so the enemy never hears the plane coming. 
And low opening is so that you make yourself a target for the least amount of time as possible. And the reason that these guys are jumping out of a plane is because they are warriors on a mission to rescue those who are oppressed and to, de- and to destroy those who oppress mankind. Now, I didn't make the connection then at all, but as I've reflected on what these men were doing over the years, this picture has really, for me, um, become a picture of Christmas, oddly enough. And, you know, you think about, I, as I've reflected on this, I've, I've realized that actually when you think about it, Christmas is about destruction and warfare. The reason that we celebrate Christmas is because God wanted something destroyed. And maybe you hear that and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus came to save and I thought he came to bring peace and I thought he came to heal. And, and you know, stick with me for a second because I think this makes a lot of sense. To say that Jesus came to save necessarily assumes that something or someone was holding you captive. To say that he came to bring peace uh, suggests that there was a prior state where there was no peace, where there was chaos. And to say that he came to heal necessarily assumes that there was some kind of sickness or disease that was ravaging you that he had to extract. And so to bring liberation, it required destruction. And if we're really going to understand Christmas, I think we have to grasp the reality that Jesus came to establish his kingdom that would declare war against everything that this world stands for. It would turn everything upside down and on his head. And so in today's passage, we are going to talk about the announcement of the king who would bring that kingdom. So before we do that, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we come before you today, and we would just pray that in these next few minutes um, that you would speak to us through your word. God, we ask that you would do something in our community here that is greater than what we could muster on our own by our own human strength. Um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our guide and our teacher, and I pray, Lord, um, for so many of us that you would clear our minds of the clutter of this season and that you would allow us to hear from you specifically. Um, Lord, we pray that um, we would be almost like, like beggars around a fire. I pray that we would gather around your word and find warmth and light, and that your word would, would change us, Lord, and that we would be a people who are doers of your word and not just hearers. So God, we pray for that grace this morning um, as we dive in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And we are continuing um, our series, our Christmas series. Um, And so while you're doing that, I'll catch you up from where we were last week. So if you're here last week, you'll remember that we met two characters. We met uh, met a guy named Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And um, they are an older couple, to say the least. Zechariah was a priest. And what's really unique about Elizabeth is it says that she was barren, which, you know, as painful and as hard and challenging as that is in, in today's society, think, you know, 
infinitely harder in that culture. There's so much pressure to have children. So there's this huge pain that she's experiencing. And yet what it says is that both Zachariah and Elizabeth were, were blameless. And so what we see in the story is that Zachariah, who was a priest, is at temple offering sacrifice. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up, and he says to Zechariah, he promises that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a son. Now, Zechariah um, responds by going, uh, Gabe, are you aware of the situation we're working with here? My wife is not exactly a spring chicken, right? And um, we're not going to be having children anytime soon. And then Gabriel responds by saying something to the tune of, I don't know how often you have angels visit you, Zachariah, but um, I stand in God's presence, and that should be enough for you. But if you need a sign to prove to you that this is going to happen, how about this? You're not going to talk until your son is born. And so my wife would say that Elizabeth received two gifts that day. One was (laughs) the long-awaited son, and the second was a silent husband for nine months. So that's where we pick up our story today. Luke chapter 1, look in verse 26. We'll read together. In the sixth month, so that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we read a couple of things about Mary Um, The first that we see is that Mary is betrothed. So betrothal in the first century is very different from engagement in our day and age. So girls back then were betrothed oftentimes before they even hit the age of puberty. So 10, 11, 12 years of age maybe, they would be betrothed. Two families would come together. They would draw up a bridal contract. There would be a bride price that would be paid. And so then after this, the couple was actually considered married, only they were not allowed to consummate their marriage. That only happened after this public ceremony that they would have sometime between 12 and 18 months after this betrothal period started. And so during that um, 12 to 18 months, that time was spent with 
the, the mom of the bride-to-be teaching the bride-to-be how to function as the woman of the house. And then often the, the groom-to-be would, would spend that time with his father, and they would um, build an addition to the father's house, right? So Jesus uses this language later on when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. That's bridal language that Jesus is bringing in there and speaking to us. And so um, it was only after this place was finished and the father of the groom said, okay, um, we can have the ceremony that the ceremony would then take place. So during this time, this betrothal period, you are considered husband and wife. The only way to break the betrothal was if one of them committed adultery or if one of them were, um, were to have passed away. If one of them committed adultery, it was considered adultery and oftentimes punishable by death. So when we read about a virgin who is 12 or 13 or 14 years old, betrothed to a man, Joseph. We're reading about Mary who is in this 12 to 18 month period of time. She is considered married, although no sexual relations. Um, So when the angel appears to her and says, Mary, you're going to have a child and it's not going to be Joseph's. You see, we kind of take this and we turn this into kind of a nice light Christmas story and we put halos on everyone. But the truth of the matter, it is, it is so much messier than that, the real story. Because what this angel was asking of Mary is that Mary would be publicly embarrassed and humiliated for the rest of her life in order to be a part of this thing that God was doing. In fact, Mary, much later in rabbinical teaching, is said to have been a prostitute who mothered Jesus after she had an illicit fair with a Roman soldier. And so 200 years after the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Mary's name is still being drugged through the dirt. And so, you know, we read this story and we hear Mary respond after the angel speaks to her, let it be to me according to your word. And, 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 we, and we so miss the weight of that yes. We don't realize how expensive that yes would have been. I mean, can you imagine? How do you go to your parents as, as a, a young teenage girl and say, so I'm pregnant, and it's not Joseph's, but God's involved. I mean, in the Old Testament, it was not uncommon for God to open wombs and for women to give birth who were not able to before, but, but a virgin birth? There's no precedent for that. I mean, there's no way Mary's parents buy this. Or how about Joseph? Hey, honey, I know we've not been together, but I'm pregnant, but I haven't committed adultery. I mean, would you buy that if you were Joseph? There's no way. And the scriptures say he doesn't buy it, right? It's, it's only through this, uh, this dream that God intervened in and, you know, communicated to Joseph that this was actually legit. But she could not have counted on that when she said yes. I mean, there's no way she could have known that Joseph would accept her that, or what her family would have thought. There was not a lot of work for single moms in the first century. In fact, if there was any sort of illegitimate circumstance surrounding the birth of your child, no good Jewish man would have anything to do with you. You were off limits. You were damaged goods. Now, I don't know how much of that weight 
Mary, the young teenage girl, felt at that moment. But we have to be careful to so quickly kind of relegate this into like a, uh, you know, a nice, neat little package of a Christmas story. This, yes, was so costly. It was so costly and it was expensive. And so Mary, after she hears from this angel, part of what the angel said to her was, your older relative Elizabeth, who was said to be barren, is going to have a son. And so Mary gets up and she goes to visit Elizabeth. And, and I think, this is just Andrew, but I think part of this, uh, part of the reason for that is just to get out of town. I mean, you are a, a pregnant teenage girl in this betrothal period in a tiny little town like Nazareth. It doesn't take long for word to spread. And so Um, So she heads off to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Look at verse 39. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So one of the things that Luke takes great pains to show us is is how we have these parallel announcements, okay? So an angel comes to Zechariah, and an angel comes to Mary. And we have these parallel birth stories that, in, in many ways, both of them are miraculous, that a barren woman would, in her old age, have a baby, and that a virgin certainly would have this baby, But what we see is that in every single way, Luke is pointing to the fact that Jesus is superior. From the way that Zechariah responds with disbelief to the way that Mary responds, says, okay, so let it be. Um, to the way that, to who John the Baptist actually is and who Jesus actually is. In every way, Jesus is superior. So even in utero, what we see is that the baby John is acknowledging that there is something special about this baby that Mary is carrying. And so again, verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And then this is key. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This last sentence, I think, is one of the keys to the entire book. All God is looking for are people who will believe the promises. That's it. And so Mary gets set in contrast with this, you know, this this old priest offering sacrifices in the temple who, who does not believe and she is set up as the one who actually believes this, this young girl, this peasant girl from nowhere, she's the one who believes and, and says that Mary is blessed. And it's not because she will give birth to Jesus, but because she believed what God had promised. Now, if you are a young teenage girl, what do you do when you're living in a strange town and you are suddenly miraculously pregnant There's got to be a lot of emotion running through your heart and your head. If you're a young teenage girl, what do you do? You sing, right? And so Mary uh, goes a little high school musical on us, and she sings this, um, this really epic song, or says this epic song. It's called the Magnificat, and um, and we'll read that here, uh, starting in verse 46. And so, and Mary said, "My soul magnifies the Lord." And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so uh, when we hear fear, when we hear about fear um, in this passage, um, you know, are we talking about being terrified of God? And um, I think it's really, uh, I think it's really clear what, what the Bible is saying here. It doesn't mean to be terrified of God or to be afraid of God. It means uh, to, to be in awe or reverence and, and respect, right? That we are dealing with a being who is so other, who is so different, so holy and pure and righteous that the only proper response is awe and reverence. And so it doesn't mean to be afraid of God for, because we know that for those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. We don't have to fear that the other shoe is gonna drop on our life at some point. And so what Mary is saying here is that he has shown me great mercy, but he will show the same great mercy to anyone who is humble enough to stand in awe of him. Verse 51 He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, this is not a Christmas story. I mean, it is in one sense, but this is really not a Christmas story. This is a manifesto. This is the battle hymn of the new kingdom. And the irony here, I mean, just remember who Mary is. She's not some haloed, magnificent person at this point. She is a nobody from nowhere who is now living underneath the hint of scandal. And here's what she says. She says, God has done something so magnificent for me, I will rejoice in it. I will declare it. I will look back at the great deeds that God has done for my people Israel. And I will say he is about to reverse everything. If you are hungry you will be full. If you are proud, you will be brought down and humbled. If you are lowly, you will be exalted. Everything is going to be turned upside down. That's what Mary is saying. And the irony here, I mean, we think of Mary just walking around with this perpetual halo, but the truth is we have a little teenage girl declaring war on the kingdoms of the world in the middle of a little backwater province in the middle of this epic empire. I mean, this is just dripping with irony. It's so absurd. This isn't some just nice, sweet, little spiritual homily. The kingdom of God isn't about a warm fuzzy or about a lofty ideal in your head. What Mary says is that this child in my womb, what he is about to do is exactly what God did for his people so long ago in the Exodus. She even uses Exodus language. She talks about God's might and his outstretched arm. That's all Exodus language where God delivered his people from slavery and he's about to do it again. If we had time, we could go through all the the lines of this passage and we could see how so many of them, most of them in fact, are dripping with Old Testament connection. 
But one of the points that, we, that I think Luke wants us to make by connecting so much to the Old Testament is that we, we need to realize that we cannot properly understand what Jesus came to do, his ministry, what his kingdom um, was doing in the Gospels without first understanding Jesus in the context of the whole story. And so what Luke is doing is, in recounting these stories, he's saying, this Jesus is the fulfillment of, the completion of all these promises that were given in the Psalms and the prophets and the writings. Everything there pointed to this Messiah. This is the beginning of the revolution. How did this revolution begin? With a virgin pregnant teenager and an old barren pregnant grandma. That's how the revolution begins. Two of the most humble, marginalized people that you can possibly imagine in their culture. God exalts and blesses them with children, and then these children will be great. That's how the revolution begins. And so what Mary does is she gives voice with illusion and reference that this new thing that God would be doing is really just the old thing that God had always promised to do. Now, it will surprise everybody because God just doesn't meet our expectations, right? He meets and keeps his promises for sure, but often in very surprising ways. I want us to take off kind of our Christmas lenses for just a moment and think about the implications of what it is that Mary was saying was going to happen. The implication is that 2,000 years from this time, there would be a group of people sitting in a, high school, in a high school in La Habra who for us, Caesar, is a salad. <laughs> and Caiaphas and Quirinius and Pilate and Herod, all the big names. They're footnotes. And instead, there would be a group of people here in La Habra that would be talking about Mary but way more important, talking about this son that was growing in her womb and that there would be people in this room who have been blessed because they believe what God has said. This is how the revolution starts. It's the most ironic, insignificant beginning in the history of, plant, in the history of a planet, a, a pregnant teenager and a pregnant grandma sitting in a room going, my goodness, can you believe this? And then Mary is so confident that all of this is going to happen that even the very verbs that she uses in this song are all, um, all tensed in a way to talk about the future as if it has already happened. It's kind of this crazy Greek tense where you're allowed to talk about something in the future as if it has already happened. And she's saying, this is so magnificent and I'm so confident that this is what God is doing. She speaks about it as if it has already happened. Now there's one parallel to Mary's song in the Old Testament and I just want to draw our attention to for a few moments. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And, um, and while you're doing that, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to meet a woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah turns out to be Samuel's mother. But before she was Samuel's mother, um, she was barren. And she dealt with an extreme amount of pain, even abuse, because of her lack of children. And so she cries out to God. And God hears her prayer and answers. And she is going to have a son. And so she responds in 1 Samuel 2. Um, starting in verse 1, with this prayer or this, this song of her own. And what I want us to do is hear 
um, the parallels here between Hannah's song and Mary's song. 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 1, says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. So horn in the Old Testament is like a symbol of strength. So she's saying she doesn't have the strength on her own, but with God's help, her strength is, uh, is lifted. It says, My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. So we see this, this theme of, of pride coming through again. In Mary's song, it says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And in, in hands, it says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. So here's some of this reversal language that we saw in Mary's song as well. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And then this last piece is so important. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of the anointed. Now, here's what, here's what she's saying. So we see a lot of the same themes in Hannah's song that we did in Mary's song. Those who are on the bottom will be brought high. Those who are high will be brought down low. And everything is going to be flipped upside down. But then at the very end, she speaks about God's king and she calls him anointed. Now, this probably won't come as a shock to most of us, but Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's his title, the Christ. And in Hebrew, it simply meant the anointed one. And so Mary's song echoes, um, echoes Hannah's song. Hannah's song came to be seen, particularly in Jesus' day and age, as a song about the coming of the Messiah. In other words, what it was saying is that when the Messiah came, everything would be inverted. Everything would be flipped upside down. The poor would be lifted up. Those high and lofty would be brought down low. And, and, and so if you're tracking this line of thought, what, what's going on here is that Mary's song is like Hannah's song. Hannah's song was about the Messiah. It was messianic. And therefore, Mary's song, Luke is connecting it to this messianic, um, this messianic connection. In other words, what Luke is saying and trying to say beyond a shadow of a doubt and, and wants to make it impossible for us to miss is that this is Messiah. And we haven't even gotten to the birth of Jesus yet. He is forecasting so clearly what the whole story is actually going to be about. And that's why when we make these things just kind of nice, neat Christmas stories, we miss the reality of all that was going on at a cosmic level here. We totally missed that. And so I want to talk to us about this word that Mary speaks and, and that, is, that reflects what Hannah has spoken and how it actually intersects with our lives today. Because the Old Testament prophets talked a lot about a day when everything would be flipped upside down. And so Mary 
in this story comes as an example of what's about to happen. Um, Anybody who is lowly can be lifted up. How? All they have to do is believe. All they have to do is trust. All they have to do is say yes. And like Mary's yes, it, it is a costly yes, but it is a yes that is so worth it. And so Mary becomes in this story like this microcosm of what's being extended to the rest of the world through Israel and to, to us. The reason that this matters is that oftentimes you and I, we, we just kind of want to spiritualize these verses, right? We, we don't want to say, we don't want to, we, we want to say, no, 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 this isn't really about kings being crushed and those high being brought down and enemies being, you know, wiped out and rulers and all of this. It's really about Jesus forgiving our sins and sending us to heaven. Does Jesus forgive sins? Absolutely, right? I mean, and is heaven real and should we be longing for it? Of course, but if we only take Jesus and relegate him to dealing with sins and heaven, we miss the radical implications of what, what's actually being said. The song that Mary sings about Jesus of Nazareth says that Jesus is a threat to everything that this world stands for. Now, he is the most kind and loving and gracious threat that you could possibly imagine, but he is a threat nevertheless. See, Jesus was so threatening to the political parties of the day that they had to get rid of him. Jesus was so threatening to the, to the false religion and hypocrisy of the day that they had to do away with him. So we see the king, so when the kingdom of God advances, it's not just about kind of warm fuzzies in my heart and devotional private time with Jesus and then someday going to heaven. The kingdom of God is about the real world of politics and economics and nations and injustice and poverty and race and gender and all of these things. It's about real life, how you and I actually interact with one another. It lays on all of that. And so what Mary is saying is, hey, look at me. What God has done for me, he is about to do for anyone who stands in awe of him. For anyone who will humble themselves and believe and call upon his name, this is what it looks like. And it's not saying that, you know, now Mary's going to go live this, this great life after this. I mean, we know essentially what Mary's life was like. It was not as if she won this, you know, this lottery at all. I mean, she had, she had a very painful life in many ways. But what we see is that she is blessed because God took a humble nobody from nowhere and elevated her into great service. And that's what blessed turns out to be in God's kingdom. You see, as Americans, I think we struggle with this because oftentimes all we hear when we hear blessed, you know, is comfort, security, wealth, and safety. That's all we've got. But what, what is being said here in, in Mary's song is that if you want to be a part of what God is doing, if you want to be blessed, you must first humble yourself. And so for those of us who find ourselves at home in this world, we're going to have a really tough time being a part of what, it, what God is doing because he's a threat to everything in this world. When the kingdom of heaven advances, there is this blessedness that transcends the categories of rich and poor and have and have not. I mean, it turns out that those who are rich and well-fed are actually at somewhat of a disadvantage for grabbing a hold of this new thing that God is doing. Why is that? Well, you don't have to, you don't have to pray for daily bread if you can just go down to the store and buy 50 kinds. And so when Mary uses these words, the mighty 
and the proud. She's talking about the self-sufficient, the self-righteous, those who see no need or those who see themselves as being able to, to handle all of their needs, those perfectly at home with the status quo. But those who are, who are sick of evil, who are tired of the sin in their own hearts and in the sin of this world, those who are, are, are brokenhearted and lonely and, and marginalized, all falling under this category of the poor, the good news is that Mary is singing. What Mary is singing about is actually really good news for you. It's good news when you have nothing. It's good news when you are at the end of yourself. It's good news when you realize that you cannot do it on your own. It's interesting news or even threatening news if you've got a lot and that's what you're leaning on. You know, an exercise that you might want to take this week, if you have time, go through the Gospel of Luke and make a list. Compare the people who miss Jesus completely with the people who get him. And I think we'll see that there's one simple attitude that runs through it all. Those who miss Jesus are proud and self-righteous and self-sufficient. They completely miss him. But those who have humbled themselves, whether life has humbled them, whether they have a humble heart and they are in awe of Jesus, those people, they find Jesus every time. And so here's what I want to say to us this morning. We need to find our poverty, I think. Because all our culture does is, um, is glorify strength and minimize weakness. That's all it does. And that even uh, seeps into the church, right? Oftentimes we don't share stories until they are kind of wrapped up nice and neat with a bow on them, and then we celebrate those. What are the stories Jesus celebrated? I mean, and I think the reality is, is that if I were to sit down at coffee with you guys this week, and I, I were to ask your story, and, you, and I were to tell you my story, the truth of the matter is that there, there are seasons and maybe years where we walk through painful, dark times. And even as we are striving for Jesus, sometimes it feels like we would be lucky to get a scrap of grace from his table. The good news is, is that the kingdom is for, for you, for, for, those, uh, for those who are, are broken and are, and are hurting like that. We want to celebrate, of course, the, the, the amazing things that Jesus does. But the truth of the matter is sometimes life does not feel like that. But it turns out that the words of Mary to us this morning speak an incredible word of comfort for those this morning who feel far away, who are mourning, who are brokenhearted. But they also speak a very strong word against those of us who are self-sufficient and proud and self-righteous. So if you really believe this, if you really believe in what Christmas is actually all about, it will have radical implications for how you and I live our lives. We have to find our poverty. We have to work to humility, and we've got to cultivate secrecy in a culture that, that exalts and glorifies self. So this really isn't about the rich and the poor. It's about proud and humble. This isn't about hungry or well-fed. This is about the proud and humble. So if you're sitting here this morning and and you're realizing I'm, I'm self-sufficient, I'm self-righteous, I'm, I'm proud. I join you this morning. And the call for us this morning is to repent. To say, God, unearth these things in my life, these pockets in my life of pride and, and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And bring these to 
the surface, Lord, and, and deal with them and give me a heart like Mary's heart, a humble heart that stands in awe of God because that's the heart that God is longing for. But the truth of the matter is there's, in a room this size, there are some of you here this morning who are broken, who are hurting, who are in maybe desperate situations. And this word turns out to be a word of comfort. There are some of you here this morning who feel totally marginalized and outcast. God's kingdom is just for people like you. Some of you are here this morning and maybe you don't feel worthy of God's grace. The good news is that the king that was growing in Mary's womb, he takes the unworthy and he elevates them in the most surprising ways. So I want to invite the worship team to come on up. We're going we're gonna to respond um, with a time of worship this morning. i say this as well, is that um, if you are here this morning and, um, and you want someone to talk to or someone to pray with, um, I'd encourage you to come on down to the front. Afterwards, there'll be someone to talk with you. Um, and if you're here this morning and you're realizing, I don't think I have a relationship with this Jesus who we're talking about, this king who, who um, was growing in Mary's womb, you can have a relationship with him. You can today come to him. He is calling you. His kingdom is for people who are lost and broken, who feel completely unworthy. And you can humble yourself today. And the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus has set up is that he will accept anyone. You don't have to meet any standard because as we talked about before in communion, Jesus has covered all of our sins. And when God looks at you when you are in Christ, he sees Jesus. And you you can give your life to him today. And so as we worship the Lord Jesus this morning, I want to encourage us um, in this way. I want to encourage us this morning to let this time of worship be a merry kind of worship. I want us to see this worship as a declaration of allegiance to something that is so much higher than anything else that this world can offer, something higher than a flag or a religion or a socioeconomic status or anything else that we put our weight into. This is a declaration of allegiance to a God that magnifies his greatness by blessing the lowly and the humble of heart. So Lord, would you make us those people? Let's pray. God, we come before you today and um, we acknowledge that there are so many times, Father, uh, in our lives where we we are proud and we are self-sufficient and self-righteous, Lord. And in this culture, we even prize those things. And yet we read that your kingdom was completely reversed and that the low, in, the, the, the low become high and the high become low. And that the heart that you seek is a heart that is in just complete and utter awe of you and realizes that we cannot do anything on our own apart from you, Lord. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts today that you would soften our hearts and show us where, where pride is, Lord, and that we would repent from that and that we would be uh, the people who are after you, Lord, that you would create in uh, this community, Father, a yearning and a longing to be those people, Father. So we ask, Lord, as we respond, that we would respond in a way where we are, are truly giving allegiance to you in the way that you deserve, Lord. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.